Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. In Islam and the Devotional Object, Seeing Religion in Egypt and Syria, Richard McGregor offers a history of Islamic practice through the aesthetic reception of medieval religious objects. Elaborate parades in Cairo and Damascus included decorated objects of great value, destined for Mecca and Medina. Among these were the precious dress sewn yearly for the Kaaba and large colorful sedans mounted on camels, which mysteriously completed the Hajj without carrying a single passenger. Along with the brisk trade in Islamic relics, these objects and the variety of contested meanings attached to them constituted material practices of religion that persisted into the colonial era, but were suppressed in the 20th century. McGregor here recovers the biographies of religious objects, including relics, banners, public texts, and coverings for the Kaaba. Reconstructing the pre-modern visual culture of Islamic Egypt and Syria, he follows the shifting meanings attached to objects of devotion, as well as the contingent nature of religious practice and experience. In our conversation, we discuss aesthetic theory, material culture, processional objects, museum exhibition, relic typologies, devotional objects and religious landscapes, public celebrations, visual text and its illegibility, and the function of banners. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And now my conversation with Richard McGregor on Islam and the Devotional Object, Seeing Religion in Egypt and Syria, published with Cambridge University Press in 2020. Welcome, Richard. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you? Great, thanks. Happy to be here. Um, so very excited to talk about this really interesting book and uh, quite quite beautiful. I'm, I'm glad you got it with a publisher that uh, replicated all these images that you have. So it's, it's a really nice book to even look at. Um, but before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about um, your journey in Islamic studies? Uh, were there moments or mentors that were influential in in bringing to the study of Islam and Muslims to, to Egypt or Syria or the types of approaches that you take, what, what kind of uh, structured the scholar you are today? Sure thing. Yeah, well, my own, my own uh, development, I guess, in, in, in research uh, trajectory um, began as a, as a, well, I mean, as an undergraduate or even in high school, I think, where when I became enamored with the idea, with the question of a comparative religion. Uh, so back in the day, this was, um, this was a hot topic. And um, I was, it, it was the paradigm, or it was the sort of big question, big puzzle that um, guided, I think, my, my, my choices in, uh, in education and guided my uh, development, certainly in the, in the earliest uh, phases. Um, 
I ended up specializing in religious studies at University of Toronto and went on to McGill University uh, and uh, further focused on, um, on Islam, the Islamic tradition, uh, and in particular, um, Sufism, Islamic thought, Islamic philosophy, uh, and focusing on uh, Egypt and Syria. So I became a uh, um, lover of the of the Mamluk world. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, also do a, a, a two-year postdoc in Cairo at the French Archaeological Institute, um, which was um, for me a, um, a a wonderful point um, in my in my own in my development as a researcher. Um, and sort of my big guiding, you know, questions I. This is something that I've returned to um, repeatedly um, is the is the paradigm uh, that I've come to <clears throat> um, explore under the title of, of, of aesthetics, right? So, uh, and, and I mean aesthetics in this to more recent uh, uh, conception of what is aesthetics, right? I mean, aesthetics used to be this fairly narrow branch of philosophy that explored the beautiful, quote unquote. Um, but in, in our sort of more contemporary usage in the modern period, um, aesthetics stopped being uh, um, exclusively about the beautiful and in and in in some ways stopped being about art to the exclusion of other objects and images in the world and aesthetics uh, so so aesthetics widened out as a as a um, discursive paradigm uh, and and for myself aesthetics and the questions of object and image, the relationship of ideas to objects um, has, has been a, a central thread in, in, in my uh, study of religion and my study of uh, medieval uh, Islam. Now, um, this particular book um, takes this idea of the, the, the object and the visual um, kind of front and center. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about how this project started to come together as a book? Um, when, when did you start to conceptualize uh, these case studies and the, this kind of um, very specific approach? Uh, you know, how did it, how did it start to, to come together for you? Yeah, well, I, I, um, I have... Um, you know, well, we as 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 religionists, you know, folks who sit around thinking about method and theory in the study of religion, um, there has been uh, a fair bit of reflection uh, in our field around let's 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 call it sort of the normative, the explanatory power of the normative paradigm. So. How do we study religion? Would be the would be the widest question, uh, which would be narrowed down into questions uh, like representation. Right. So, what are the authoritative voices? Uh, what are the defining boundaries, characteristics of a religious tradition that we are going to operate with when we sit down to think about? religious phenomena in the world, right? So how do we come to our object? And so do we defer as scholars to normative structures, right? That religious traditions uh, uh, present to us. Do we defer to those? Do we use the normative lens right, as the authoritative uh, focus right, for, for our study of religion? That's a you know, there are many ways that that question has been has been um, advanced, but but I think that's a, that's been a key move in the last you know in our generation. So one one uh, related issue or sort of one way that that question comes to light 
right, is around uh, uh, the practice of religion. So things we, we used to call them popular practices of religion. We used to call them things like syn syncretic practices uh, of religion. We used to say things like, you know, the small tradition versus, you know, the orthodox great tradition uh, of, of tradition of Islam. Um, so pretty quickly, right, we see that the history of religious, the history of the practice of Islam is so vast, so complex, so rich, that deferring to sort of normative lenses and normative structures, right, and normative uh, authoritative narratives uh, around religion as our lens, deferring to those <laughs> doesn't help us, right? Or, or, or pretty quickly, we see that we see the limitations of those normative uh, uh, models. So with that, with that nuance in mind, I, I um, turned increasingly to, to focus, of course, in my area of, of interest, so, so Mamluk Egypt, and uh, trying to take a, let's say, bottom-up uh, approach as was the experiment, right? So um, the way I would pitch it to a publisher, right, would be to say, um, imagine you fell from the sky, from the moon, and you landed in Cairo in the middle of the uh, 14th century. Uh, what would you see? Like, what, what would Islam, Islamic practice, what would religious practice look like? How would it present itself to you? Well, um, it would be a complicated picture. It would be full of images, bodies, objects, uh, sacred space, right? The sensory, right? All of these things would be presenting themselves to you uh, sort of from the ground up or, or kind of daily, the daily life perspective, right? Versus the model where we would have uh, sort of authoritative abstractions about uh, Islam, and then as historians walk out and try to find confirmation uh, of the, of those right of those structures. So this is to start with the object, and and the book. It ended up being useful. I found to um, to articulate and to underline what what I what I've come to call the devotional impulse. Right, so the, just this devotional impulse to capture the sort of visceral, sensory, grounded, uh, embodied, daily, uh, immediate practice and experience of Islam. So let's start with that. Let's start with that practice. Let's start with those objects. Let's start with that impulse, right? The devotional impulse. And then build out, and then tell the stories, and uh, you know, and then contextualize. Um, so, so, so this approach, sort of starting with the objects, doesn't preclude. I mean, we we end up, you know, um, talking about Islamic law. You end up talking about theology. You talk about politics. You talk about history. You talk about, um, you know, all, all of these uh, substantial Islamic discourses. Um, but but starting with the object, starting with the daily life uh, perspective, uh, as a as a technique, uh, as a method, um, took me to um, places that I think I wouldn't otherwise get to. So one of the things I really loved about the book was you uh, synthesized very clearly a lot of theoretical resources for the study of objects material culture, visual culture, um, this kind of field. And you make some, um, what I think is very productive uh, assertions from your, from your own perspective. So could you uh, talk us through some of the things that you think are uh, perhaps hurdles to the study of uh, material religion um, and what are some productive ways to, to move forward uh, as a kind of general general ideas about aesthetics and visual culture, objects, these kind of things. Sure. Yeah, and the, the book ended up being a wonderful, um, wonderful platform for, for, for me, uh, for, for working out a lot of these um, methodological questions. And so, so my take, uh, 
you know, in the um, in the wake of uh, these, you know, the, the developments in the last ten years, right, in the study of religion around uh, material religion, um, I, I found the, as I mentioned earlier, sort of this this idea of sort of starting with the objects. Um, I found that to be helpful, uh, and it, and it and it was helpful because it because not because it determined what uh, you know what the analytical uh, possibilities and outcomes were going to be, but but it started sort of starting with the object was useful because it it would help uh, shift the sort of analytical paradigm. Right? for me as a as a researcher so the questions that i had to ask uh, once i have sort of followed the object once i have started with the object the the, the, the subsequent questions that i as an islamicist uh, you know um, um, resort to are uh, oftentimes um, um, a, a shift right or 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 a reach or or some some sort of a new focus um, compared to um, the way I would I would have normally approached the history of religion and the history of, of Islamic practice. So just starting with the object as a methodological step uh, in my experience was was helped helped me very much and even and even um, I would say helped to shift the, the discursive paradigm helped to shift the kinds of questions that I that I suddenly needed to ask. And, and another sort of takeaway, I, I, I think, from 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 wrestling with this methodologically, um, for me, I, I had to uh, sort of learn. I had to um, I had to make room uh, for um, how a material religion uh, operates as a, a as a analytical structure. It hinges on aesthetics in the sense that engagement with an object or image, right, is a, an embrace of the sort of unspoken communication, right, that an image or an object uh, makes, right? I think that's, 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 that, that's a pretty go-to uh, undisputed dimension of, of aesthetics, right? Like, I mean, what, what, what is the field of aesthetics? Well, aesthetics hinges on this understanding that and this assumption and this given that objects and images uh, communicate, but they communicate in ways that are not reducible to language, right? And, th and that's sort of the wonderful uh, fertile uh, ground in the puzzle, right? Of, of, of images and objects and hence of, of aesthetics. But back to that methodological structure, right? So in my, in my own work, what 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 I what I had to uh, sort of bring into focus was that yes, starting with objects does shift your paradigm. Starting with objects and images uh, does open you up to engaging around these phenomena of the unspoken communication of of aesthetics that's at play. And then the third step there, right, is to say. Well, now you still, as a researcher, <laughs> um, have to wear your methodological hat. So you have to still complete that picture uh, by being a, you know, a phenomenologist, by being a comparativist, by being you know, uh, um, uh, a historian describing a social history and social structure. You know, it, you, we, we still talking about material religion starting with the objects doesn't preclude, it doesn't replace the methodologies that we, uh, um, that we, that we use as religionists. It, it focuses, I, I think it frames uh, the phenomena in wonderful ways that, it, right, approaching it as, as material religion, I think, I think it gives us focus uh, and, and, and a kind of a depth of focus, uh, but we still, we still have to bring to the table uh, our own methodological um, approaches and structures and the strengths and weaknesses, right, um, of those of those methodologies. So, so sort of 
the, you know, talking about the agency of the object, right? Or, or, or in the book, I talk about the scattering of object or, or, or the aesthetic resistance of an object. Th- those are sort of interesting things to focus on, right? Those, those phenomena around the objects. But like I say, just to repeat, it doesn't preclude the full-blown methodological structure that, that we as researchers must bring to the data that we must bring to the phenomena. Yeah, that's good. I, uh, I think people that want to think about uh, right, or approach uh, Muslim societies in this way, I think your book would provide a, a nice entry point for them to, to kind of think about this in, in complex ways. So, um, so thanks for providing that kind of uh introduction in a way but um the examples you look at are really really fascinating as well and you you start the book off looking at um the kaaba's ceremonial dressing and uh, the processional sedan for its travels um can you tell us a little bit about the life of the the kiswa and the mahmil in egyptian religious life and what the various movements of these objects reveal to us from your study. Right. So, yes, right. So the book, the book um, follows a series of, of objects, right? Again, sort of that imaginary, um, you know, what, what, what would we see if we were standing, you know, on, in, 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 the, in the main thoroughfare of Cairo? What, what, what would we, you know, what would be the sensory engagements as the practice of Islam? And right, so they, um, the uh, first two chapters look at the mahmal uh, and the kiswa, right? So the, the, the kiswa covering, the dress, right? This uh, elaborately inscribed dress uh, in the modern period, it's, it's black um, for, for the Kaaba, right? And that, and that dress um, had a, a rich a ritual and devotional life. Um, uh, in, and so my focus in the in the uh, Mamluk period, um, just just uh, helps to bring out uh, the the depth and the uh, like. I say this this devotional life of the kiswa or the the, the dress of the Kaaba. The the related object right is the is the mahmal the it's 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 uh, from like the Arabic the haudaj right the. A carrier, right? Typically, well, normally of of, of passengers, right? On the on the back of a, uh, of, of an animal, a camel. Uh, now, there this Hajj, part of the Hajj culture, part of the Hajj rituals and practices, uh, included the celebration of the Mahmal. Uh, the Mahmal would be sent out from various capitals in the Islamic world in the pre-modern throughout the pre-modern period, uh, to and would accompany the uh, the, the pilgrim caravan on the Hajj. So the the Mahmal was this large English word palanquin, but um, this large, elaborately uh, inscribed uh, f- fabric. A structure that would travel on the back of a camel as part of the hush. So they, the the chapter focuses on these objects, and then sort of sets out to sort of tell their story, to 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 chase down the religious uh, discourses out of which they evolve, the rituals that they were involved in the devotional resonance of these objects that is how people in their day in their immediate environment related uh, to these objects uh, filled uh, many pages and took uh, uh, several years to to simply track down to recover that story and and as i as i mentioned at the beginning of our conversation 
um, you know, this, this um, methodological question about uh, authoritative and normative discourses, right, uh, needing to be uh, problematized uh, by us as, as uh, researchers. The interesting thing about the Mahmal is that on the, while on the one hand, this work ended up showing this rich uh, devotional life, this rich ritual life, this rich even political dimension uh, of the of the Mahmal um, in in the lives of Kyrenes and 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 many others, because you could send Mahmals from other capitals. So so it's just sort of the tip of the iceberg told uh, in this book, the story of the Mahmal. But um, but that 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 sort of dramatic uh, history uh, actually has a historical framework to it, and it's a 700-year period. Um, so roughly 12, so it's the middle of the 13th century uh, to the middle of the 20th century was the a period of the um, manufacturing and processing, parading uh, of the Mahmal. And then, as I said, this rich devotional life uh, that, that, uh, that it accrued. Um, back to that point about uh, the deferring to the normative narratives. If we look at, I don't know, look in the Encyclopedia of Islam or look in um, you know, some Akida uh, um, articulation of basic Islamic beliefs uh, and rituals, you're not going to find a Mahmals. You will just you will find no mention of this practice. Uh, this long, rich his Islamic practice uh, will not appear in our textbooks. Uh, that is the the textbooks of uh, Islamic studies, and again, sort of our our our, our normative uh, um, framework for the nature and the study of Islam. Uh, the Mahmal will will not appear. And so as a researcher, you, you, you're sort of flummoxed by that. How can this be such uh, something that receives such a, such a massive human input as an Islamic practice, as an expression of Islamic devotional, devotionalism, and it not appear in our sort of you know, official history of Islam? Uh, 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 or, or even accountings of, of Islamic beliefs? Well, Right, uh, there's there's sort of a whole story to, to be told about that, but but the methodological point is to say that there's all kinds of um, practices, conceptions, developments, right, objects, material cultures, visual cultures that our methodological lenses can exclude from us, can 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 hide from us, right, uh, that. Hopefully, right, a shift in this case to material Islam, right, um, can 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 shift our paradigm and can open up to us, um, um, you know, these these otherwise occluded uh, dimensions of 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 Islam. Yeah, I, I didn't really know much about this. I had seen a couple images, um, I think, in either museum catalogs or or kind of art history books, but I really hadn't heard much about this at all. And um, you, you, you continue the analysis of uh, the Mahmal um, around kind of what maybe what we would call Mahmal related practices uh, around tombs, funerary practices. And then ultimately um, it's, uh, it ends up in museums, you see these. So can you tell us a little bit about these kind of related practices um, where else does the Mahmal show up? How are these practices, uh, you know, understood or contested by Muslims? And ultimately, how did it end up? Uh, how did it come to be exhibited in the way it is? Yes. So, so the 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 sort of the biography of this devotional object, <clears throat> the biography of the of the Mahmal, uh, as I mentioned spans basically 700 what years sort of the, sort of the active public devotional life uh, of this object um so that yes right so so the um the banning of the the end of the mahmal practice in cairo uh so 1952 um itself 
is an important part of the story, sort of the the the, the last chapter of this uh, of the life of this object um, is 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 a surprising and um, in right in in an unexpected uh, and in some ways a, a challenge uh, to explain. So very briefly. Um, with the rise, uh, well, with the establishment of of uh, of the um, um, the power of the uh, Saudis in Arabia, the control of the Haramain, and the rise uh, of sort of Salafists friendly or, or oriented Islamic discourses in Egypt, so. Starting in the 18, well, the, the very end of the 19th century, uh, and then up in the early part of the 20th century, uh, contestation, right? Um, uh, around what are licit uh, Hajj practices, what are so, so um, the, the public practice of Islam, what's the place of religion in the public square, what, you know, what, what is, what should Islamic practice be? Uh, and where does the government, uh, you know, where does political power, you know, fit into this, uh, you know, fit into that equation? Yeah, these things, there's plenty of contestation. Uh, so the first part of the 20th century, right, the pendulum swings back and forth um, around, uh, well, around practices uh, like Sufism, right, um, and the, um, the Hajj rites and observances are, are also debated, um, and 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 that's a, a rather you know it's an interesting sort of prolonged decades, several decades long discussions. Anyways, to jump to the to the end of it, uh, the 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 Mahmal and its related parading practices and its related Hajj culture um, comes to an end. Uh, the government decides that they are going to stop this practice. At first, they scale it down, but anyways, they they the decision is made finally uh, to to stop the, uh, the 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 public parading of the Mahmal in Cairo, and a dilemma presents itself. And the dilemma clearly is: what does one do? If if one is if 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 we're conducting religious reform, um, what do we do with these objects? Um, and and it was not at all clear what to do with the mahmal, right? A such a, a, a prominent and central iconic object of Hajj culture, and the uh, upshot is well the answer. Uh, is the this uh, originally a colonial uh, imposition, right? And there are kind of very negative ways we can tell the history of of you know the museum in Egypt, right? Uh, with that colonial legacy and and the, and the frameworks for collecting and, and and the rationale behind the museums in in the Middle East is you know problematic. Um, that becomes the space uh, in which. This object, the Mahmal, uh, is uh, is sent, and there's this there's this sense that this devotional devotional Islamic object can be uh, sort of contained, or can be, and in that sense be neutralized. I'm, I'm not sure that's a, a good way to put it, but uh, by the this modern institution, the museum. And that was recently nationalized, like just recently nationalized, right? Uh, at, at this point, so so you have museums becoming a tool in Islamic religious reform. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off um so you move to um another kind of interesting discussion about this uh tension between um text right the you know um written text and its illegibility um through these examples of uh banners um so what, what should we know about the, these various banners and their parading practices? Because that's also probably new to a lot of listeners. Um, but then how, do, how does the, visible, the visibly unread text operate? Uh, and then how does it resist uh, the, the equation of its meaning with language, uh, as you kind of discussed earlier in the book, this idea of resistance? So. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, the <clears throat> the uh, right. So it's it's uh, you know in the in the heart of the book, I have a, a chapter um, on 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 processions and and banners. Uh, and this was a this for me was was a. I mean, I I I just learned so much. So many lights, you know, sort of went off uh, for for me as I pursued. Uh, in, in, in that chapter, which, which which was the the banner, right? So, right, we have all kinds of uh, public display processions, right, um, um, related to harsh practices, right? Urban, well, uh, harsh practices, um, and the, and the more I the more I sort of uh, dug around uh, in that material, I I could see that there that there really was something. Very uh, significant and nuanced. It's a very multi-layered um, around around banners, right? So, um, so obvious questions start to present themselves, right? What what does it mean to display right, a, a banner, a, a religious banner? What and then you know you you just get more questions uh, uh when you start to ask um, um put these objects um into focus uh questions uh like uh, um uh legibility right so so how does a banner work as an object is a banner an image or is a banner a, a text well, right. So the answer is uh, it, it's both. It's it's legible. It's almost intentionally, however, illegible, right, or difficult to read, or at least the legibility is not central to a to a to a religious banner, right? As as a as a say a manuscript uh, or or in other inscriptions are. So so how does that? You know, what, what what does that mean for this object? What what are these, you know, what are those observations telling us about um, religious banners and their and their use, right, in 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 devotional life? Well, we we have sort of these several layers of uh, discursive communication, right, are at play. It becomes a a, a very uh, uh, nuanced. Um, uh, um, component right of the material and visual culture right of of islamic devotions and in this case around the display and uh, movement right of of banners so especially i mean i i happen i i just focused on the sufi orders and their banners because they're ubiquitous uh, in 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 this period and many banners many sufi parades many sufi orders and and so the chapter just tries to just tries to follow out some of these questions, right? So, 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 how does uh, how do inscriptions operate uh, um, on the aesthetic level? How do how do the non-discursive 
components of a banner uh, communicate? How does how, do, how does this writing, this carried moving, uh, right, these texts uh, carried in the arms of humans right through a topography, how does that uh, communicate uh, aesthetically right into the Islamic devotional uh, register? So yeah, these these really tricky and and ended up being sort of delightfully uh, uh, rich uh, uh, inquiries uh, that followed this otherwise with you know deceptively simple uh, object that is the sort of humble uh, a banner of the of a of a religious procession yeah and i think that's a, a great way to put it cuz that seemed to be happening to me as a reader uh, you know getting introduced to all these objects was you know they seem like of course just we can think of them in this simplistic way but then all these these further questions do open up um, and this this happens, of course, um, as you move on, you you look at relics um, and objects of devotion. Um, and one of the things that uh, was really great about this chapter is you you provide uh, or establish a kind of uh, relic typology um, in terms of uh, kind of their their function and purpose and how they how they relate to each other. So can you talk about the different types of relics that you uh, how you categorize them. Yeah, I, right. So so uh, another object or, or a set of objects, yeah, right, is that is the is the relic. Uh, something that, well, um, you know, just did not have a, a lot of scholarly uh, research uh, behind it. Uh, it that is, of course, in, in our context of the, of the Islamic world, um, um, in, 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 in the study of Buddhism, you know, relics, uh, there's plenty of work uh, being done and, and all kinds of terrific theorizing. And then in the, in the European uh, uh, context, uh, relics and, and, and the work that's been done on them and and in other traditions in other parts of the world. And, but for, yes, for, for the Islamic, world, uh, relics, um, athar, or sometimes called mukhalafat, um, were um, widespread, uh, easily recognized, um, celebrated uh, objects, again, important objects in the in the uh, visual, material, devotional landscape, right, of, of Islam, with very little scholarly attention. And I think, uh, I think it's, well, it's, it's in, uh, maybe it's the first encyclop first edition of the Encyclopedia of Islam, so, uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this uh, under Athar, or, or relics, I forget the, the entry, but it, but the, you know, you look and you expect to find an article on relics, but you find um, simply uh, uh, one sentence, see Ibn Taymiyyah, right? Is the encyclopedic uh, entry, uh, right? I Ibn Taymiyyah, um, also of the Mamluk period, but a, a great uh, uh, critic of, um, of popular Islamic practice uh, and, and, and himself a religious reformer. Uh, so yes, uh, rel Islamic relics. Um, so that history um, is is just waiting to be, um, you know, waiting to be uh, explored. Um, so I I, I began um, with the with the typology, and um, I don't know if I have it off the top of my head to 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 reproduce it, but but I um, began to survey. Um, um, of course, the, the ritual, the related ritual practices, but um, with my focus on um, aesthetic communication, I, 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 I do engage with the ma ma material support of, of relics, right? So, so relics, yes, are, are images, but um, they are also these, this material. Right? They are these material 
um, um, constructs, right, that are that are placed in uh, the visual field. So, 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 what is the material support, uh, and is that a useful way to to start making sense of this wide variety? My my typology ends up being a, a mix, and I and I hope uh, um, I'm I'm depending on uh, other younger, uh, more energetic scholars to to pick up and challenge and to develop this typology further. But my, my um, 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 categories, the, the categories that I'm pr proposing around uh, um, to begin with are, are categories uh, like uh, bodily relics, um, right? which of course would be uh, these, these um, parts of a human body, right? In the, it, uh, and in, in Cairo, um, most prominent shrine, arguably, is is one to uh, a head relic, right, uh, of Hussein. Um, but all the way down to the to the to nail clippings and hairs of the Prophet, right. Uh, uh, another category uh, is uh, imprint relics. So the Islamic traditions. Um, recognition of and and uh, uh, memorialization and uh, ritual engagement with with imprints, right? Um, and 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 these are all the way from um, I mean the um, footprint relics, uh, right? So so uh, in, in Cairo itself, um, we have records of. Uh, footprints of the prophet, footprints of uh, other prophets, footprints of various uh, saintly figures, um, but but more widely in the Islamic tradition, imprint relics uh, um, relating to um, um, the earliest history of Islam. So, in 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 chasing down and trying to fill out this picture of imprint relics, I was. Um, it really brought into focus for me that the the wealth of uh, the, the richness of the devotional topography of Mecca and Medina in the pre-modern period and imprint relics were was a wonderful um, bridge uh, into that sacred topography uh, that was celebrated, written about plenty in in across a variety of sources. Um, that celebrated and engaged and would sort of tell the story uh, of um, uh, early Islamic uh, history and the subsequent devotional posture, right, towards that history uh, through sites, right? So through locations in Mecca and Medina. So here is Khadija's house, for example, and here is an imprint in stone where, you know, Muhammad sat. And then here is, you know, here's the mark on the floor where uh, Hussein was born uh, and on and on. So, so these, this constituted a, uh, another category that, that I provisionally called uh, uh, imprint, imprint relics. Um, so yeah, so sort of a, a whole series, really just me uh, trying and ending up trying to control what ended up being a a, a surprisingly rich and varied um, field of, of, um, of uh, visual and material culture that could fall arguably under this, um, this uh, wide category uh, of Islamic relics. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, it's helpful. Um, it, and um, I think you do a good job of kind of looking at the various uh, roles that these can can play as well, and you you kind of flesh this out um, in the following chapter that looks at relics both in their relationship to authority and then also their relationship to uh, constructing or shaping religious landscapes. Uh, these are often <laughs> combined. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about um, how relics are wielded by those in power and and how they might be used to reconfigure religious topographies? Mm. And yeah, I, th I think this this um, connection between um, devotional objects and topographies, I think, is is a very uh, very basic uh, connection, right? Uh, I mean, we 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 
we're tempted to think of aesthetic objects uh, sort of pulled out of their environments. I mean, we're, we're, we're typically pretty comfortable, right? Talking about, about uh, aesthetic, uh, the aesthetics of objects, uh, you know, sort of floating in space. And, and that's, you know, there's a reason for that. But, but I think for this, for the study of, of religion, for the study of, of, of Islam, uh, that, right, topography, right, evolving topography, the political and religious and devotional topographies, right, is the space, right, in which these objects live. It's the space in which these objects matter. It's the space uh, that these objects illuminate, right, or inhabit, right, or traverse, or in which they, you know, connect various sites or various you know, dots on the map, as it were. So I, I, I think, yeah, I think relics, although, yes, of course, these are movable objects, um, there, but 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 there, but there, any movement they make, any position they have, um, is you know it, we're immediately talking about uh, the the topog- We're immediately talking about a, a religious landscape, right? In the world in which these objects live and in which they make sense and in which they you know live have their careers as 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 devotional objects. Yes, is is the topography. So. I, I start to write as a as a uh, um, follow up on the um, um, typo- typography uh, typology of relics uh, to talk about this uh, to talk about um, the religious topography, but there's so much to do. I, I discussed fairly pretty quickly overwhelmed uh, by that story. Um, so we're talking about sacred space and we're talking about mapping. Right? Um, but 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 it seemed to me pretty clearly that that uh, you know a, an important place uh, and a good place to start um, is is around um, relics um, that uh, relate to the central ritual rite of the Hajj that relate to the Prophet uh, himself and to uh, um, immediate followers. Uh, so we, so uh, this question of of engineering a devotional landscapes through relics seemed to be um, you know, a, a solid line to follow in that context. Um, so I, I, I talk um, a, a bit in that chapter about the various um, plans to um, uh, acquire relics and by, by Usually caliphs, but others um, to acquire relics as part of a, a campaign, as part of a, a strategy to engineer shrines, to, so to basically to to constitute sacred space, right in a particular religious and, and political uh, topography. Uh, Al Hakim is the sort of most dramatic figure but but there are plenty of others um, who understand uh how these you know they, they have a very clear sense of of, of how relics work the central um, um position of relics in devotional culture uh and and the sense that yes shrines you know uh shrines are built so why not why you know why why not uh build our own. So, whatever your political agenda is, uh, your ideological agenda, or even you know your your uh, religious perspective right, within the Islamic tradition, uh, can be articulated and advanced through the creation of of shrines and devotional spaces, and you generate those within these religious topographies. And a great way to do it, a very quick way to do it, uh, is to mobilize relics. So maybe you try to you know, uh, steal them, uh, but you try to acquire them from Mecca and Medina. There's, of course, a, a whole market of, of relic trading that develops uh, in the, well, fairly early on. I mean, we. Um, medieval but fairly early on we, we have plenty of of examples of of uh the 
recognition and use and mobilization of relics for various purposes uh, from, I mean, within, I mean, we go back to Hadith literature uh, to uncover the early chapters of, of relic, uh, relic recognition and the sort of strategic use of relics uh, as, right, as a tool, uh, as a tool within the, the uh, Islamic um, toolbox, right, for engineering uh, religious landscapes. Now there's, uh, I mean, a lot to the book. Um, we could talk for a lot, a lot more. But is there anything essential that you wanted to uh, to to discuss um, before I let you go? Well, um, I I I guess just to maybe round out the picture, um, the um, we mentioned the um, the role of the museum. Right, this colonial institution, uh, nationalized, but uh, um, this colonial institution, uh, as in the in the last in the later chapters of the life of uh, of the of the Mahmal, um, th- there's a uh, in the, at the end of the book, I am um, in, in the context. Uh, sort of feeding off, following on on um, relics and the creation of of sacred space and topographies. I um, look at the uh, use of uh, spolia uh, in. I mean, I restrict myself to to um, Mamluk and well, Mamluk and Ottoman, but primarily Mamluk period uh, Egypt uh, and the use of. Um, Pharaonic spolia um, within um, again the religious landscape and w- w- within religious um, architecture. So, so it ended up there was a, a fairly sustained use of uh, pharaonic objects, the recovered, chosen, presented. Uh, building materials, right? That are that are clearly that are inscribed and are are and, and we can identify where they're from and you know and, and what the text says in them, um, of of these pharaonic spolia into especially Mamluk uh, buildings and and I'm focusing on on, on religious buildings, um, and from a from a Again, back to the sort of methodological uh, shifting, the methodological focus. Uh, they're they're one they're they're a bit dissonant uh, phenomena, right? Why 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 would you as a as a Muslim patron, I guess, or or, or a builder, um, use you know choose uh, pharaonic spolia and present them in 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 these in these these obviously uh, carefully chosen. Uh, displays. I don't mean just you know, sort of uh, tearing down blocks, you know, from a pyramid to use in the foundation of a wall. Um, I, I, I mean cartouches, right? Uh, figural representations, text uh, from from pharaonic materials that that was presented, that 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 was chosen. So why, right? And um, I, you know, it, it, I'm 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 presenting this this as a as in the book right really as this little case study right to say well here is where right this this is these framing around aesthetic uh is helpful is helpful to bring these objects and these practices and this uh this uh discursive communication what's signaled right by these objects by these images by these inscriptions i i and um my argument is that um the aesthetic uh, framework and questions right uh, can can help us get traction on what might otherwise be a, a pretty puzzling you know phenomena. It seems like a cultural disconnect, right? Why would one you know why would medieval Muslims uh, uh, um, draw on these foreign objects? And right, so I I I I, I recover some of that history uh, and trace down some of these objects. And, and, and so to bring it back up to this, uh, the, this, uh, the colonial period, um, the, that story ends, at least, at least for, for, for my work, uh, it ends, right, so this, this practice of the uh, incorporation of pharaonic spolia in Islamic uh, architecture, in a sense, 
uh, ends or is at least deeply disrupted um, by a, the intervention, uh, not so much of, a, of an Islamic um, uh, religious reform, uh, but of a colonial intervention. So while, while the French and British uh, were building, you know, uh, museums, they were also uh, intervening directly into the built uh, environment. They were intervening into the visual field of, uh, of Islamic uh, religious spaces. And they were intervening uh, with this logic that of, of uh, purification. Right? So the French would come and say, well, this has a pharaonic cartouche right, in your zawiya, and, and this, must be, this must be ripped, torn out, and we must put it in the, in the Louvre. Um, and, the, and the British were doing you know, their share of, of what they thought were sort of purifying or untangling you know, this, this, this complex uh, uh, visual culture that, 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 that they found. Um, in the built environment and, and, and intervened in, in many places to, uh, uh, to like I say, a, a violent intervention um, to uh, un untangle right, and, and disassociate uh, the Islamic from the Pharaonic in the categories that, 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 made, sense, uh, that made sense to them. So, so, so these, uh, these lives right of objects um, are, uh, are are long right and complex and sometimes uh, uh, with surprise surprise endings yeah well it's a it's a really great book and um, an interesting take and I hope I hope people will follow in your footsteps and and pursue this type of uh, approach moving forward. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the things uh, you've perhaps been working on or that you have planned in the future. Sure, sure. Um, well, one, yeah, so sort of several, uh, several uh, avenues, um, you know, open up. That's the th thing about, you know, writing a book. It just, you just come out with, uh, <laughs> you know, half a dozen book proposals after finishing your book. Um, which, which is great. Um, uh, but yeah, so certainly on relics, you know, I, I, I think just as a category, um, uh, we as religionists, you know, those of us who, who work in, you know, Sufism, um, uh, Islamic theology, those of us who, who are interested in ritual uh, relics, I think are a wonderful puzzle waiting to be explored and will, will reward us if we, if we, if we sort of embrace them. Uh, um, but then also from the material side, so are, are people interested in, 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 in material culture per se, so sort of the more art historical, archaeological approaches, uh, um, you know, um, can also uh, join these discussions. And, and, and I think um, focusing on, on the um, material and visual uh, helps to, 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 to sort of widen the tent, you know, of, 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 uh, of research and, and, and discussion. So, so, so for me, relics seems to have a, a sort of wide uh, resonance that, that, that I'm, that I'm hoping to, um, to build out. Um, but uh, actually I'm, I'm heading, I'm, I'm starting out on a project um, that's relating to, we, we spoke earlier about the sort of puzzle that that is um, the Islamic banner, right? uh, the, the moving text, right? The sort of illegible image uh, that is the that is the uh, inscribed banner, and, and with all of its performative uh, um, communication. Um, uh, some of that has 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 pushed me to um, to set out to explore what I, what I would like to what I think will reward uh, more uh, attention uh, is the uh, sensory uh, and uh, devotional resonance of uh, manuscript material in the in in pre-modern Islamic practice. So 
things like marginalia, things like scratches, things like you know rubbings on manuscripts, um, these these sort of forms of uh, intertextuality, uh, these these this visceral embodied impact and interaction with devotional Islamic texts is something that I'm that I'm um, that I'm embarking upon. So that's going to take some <laughs> refining of you know how I'm going to approach that. Um, around method and theory, but 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 at the same time, it should bring into it should allow me a focus to uh, go back into this vast, uh, very lightly studied uh, um, treasure trove that we have of uh, devotional manuscripts, right, in the Islamic tradition, right? These 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 very important texts that. Um, that we have not been able to appreciate as a field with, you know, with our assumptions around, uh, you know, Islamic theology, Islamic practice, normative practice, the word, right, the book, orality. Uh, so, so hopefully this focus on the embodied visceral interaction with devotional texts will, will allow me a little bit of a, a toehold into this uh, significant and and definitely understudied uh body of islamic literature let's that we can just co- sort of call the devotional literature uh widely conceived well it sounds like you have a lot of work ahead of you <laughs> richard i wish you the best of luck <laughs> no, and, I'm good. Uh, yes i'll need it yeah thank you yeah and thank you for taking time to talk about this wonderful book great well well christian it's it's been my pleasure and, um, and, and I'd also like to thank you um, for, for hosting, but, but thank you for all your work in, in these many uh, wonderful interviews that you have made uh, available uh, to the field. It's, 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 it's just a, an amazing service uh, uh, and many gifts uh, that you have uh, just sent out into the world uh, through your intrepid uh, work. Uh, on this platform. So uh, so many people uh, will join me in in thanking you um, also. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, we have a good team now and uh, we will continue doing the good work. (laughs) Terrific. That was my conversation with Richard McGregor on Islam and the devotional object, Seeing Religion in Egypt and Syria, published with Cambridge University Press in 2020. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.